Not too many people know about this. I've kept it kind of quiet, but uh, a few years ago, I, I ran in the, the Boston Marathon. And uh, when I went to register online, they had some websites that were put there to help you know, runners prepare for the race. And one of the web, web, websites said it was, it was important that you like, put together you know, a training schedule but I actually never got around to doing that. I just kind of worked out, you know, when I felt like it, which wasn't very often, to be honest. There was another website that said it'd be really helpful to have a running buddy, you know, someone who could like run with you, kind of run the same pace as you and, you know, help you, encourage you, maybe even run the the marathon, you know, with you. But all all of my friends were too lazy for that. Um, I went to another website and it said, you know, it's really important that like every week as you're getting closer to the marathon, you're actually increasing the distance of your runs until you have already run at least pretty close to the 26 miles. But I think maybe my, my longest run was three or four miles. There was actually a diet plan that was posted to help you get ready for the race, but it, it didn't have any pizza on it, so I didn't do that. Um, now, I know probably what some of you were thinking as you're hearing all this. I, I must have failed miserably on the day of the marathon, but you would be wrong. Uh, because here's what happened. When I approached the starting line, uh, right before the gun went off, I bowed my head and I whispered this quick prayer, God, would you help me to run this race well? And would you just help me to be a blessing to everyone around me? And so I ran. And not only did I finish, but I came in first in my age bracket. I was even able to help, you know, some other people as they were kind of struggling along the way, encourage them and everything. You know, it was just this great, wonderful day. Now, how many of you actually believe that story? (laughs) Anybody here want to raise your hand and say, Pastor Mike's full of it right now? (laughs) The truth is, yes, I have never run in a marathon. But if I ever did, I cannot imagine myself thinking that the only preparation I'd need to do would be like right before the race started, pray a quick prayer, you know, right? Strangely enough, that's exactly how many, many people approach the Christian life. No training required, no effort necessary. A lot of people say, just let go and let God. You ever heard that one? In case you didn't know, let go and let God is not in the Bible. Nowhere. The Bible never says that. If the Apostle Paul actually uh, says in a number of places some things that are very, very different. One example, just one is First Timothy 4, 7, where Paul says, train yourself to be godly. Our passage today in the book of Romans has a very similar message. Today's title is Set Free from Sin. And in our passage, Romans 6, uh, verses 1 through 14, Paul is telling us that God wants all Christ followers to live lives of freedom from sin. But it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen without effort. 
But, you know, a lot of people, they just get confused about that. And it's kind of interesting when you consider where we've come in our study of Romans. For five chapters, what Paul has been doing is arguing that salvation is this free gift. It, it just comes freely as a gift to anyone who will receive it. And this is so different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world operates on this premise. I obey and therefore God or the gods are going to accept me. And the gospel comes and turns that upside down and says God has accepted me by a free act of his grace. And therefore I will obey. All I need to do is believe in that grace and receive that grace like a gift. And maybe you remember as we've been studying, you know, uh, a couple chapters ago toward the end of chapter 3 in Romans, Romans 3, 23 and, and 25 say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to be received by faith. And then that's what Paul was saying in Romans 4 when he talked about Abraham's faith and And he tells us that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness apart from works, no works. In fact, if you were here last week, maybe you remember we saw this at the end of chapter 20. Paul wraps, uh, chapter 5, Paul wraps that up in verse 20 by saying, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so that naturally leads to a question that some people were asking. Well, if Sin magnifies God's grace. Why not just sin some more? I mean, like, if we just sin our brains out, isn't that going to make God look really, really good? Now, Paul is going to tell us, as we'll see in a couple minutes, that's ridiculous. And as he does, he's going to show us the way that we can actually, truly, in reality, be set free from sin. You see, again, for these five chapters, as Paul has been telling us uh, about the gospel, he's been explaining to us how we are to be made right with God. And he makes it so clear our only hope is God's righteousness given to us by grace alone, through faith alone. And and I've told you uh, before in this study, that's the doctrine of justification But what you need to know now as we turn the page to Romans 6 and as we move through 6 and 7 and 8, these three chapters, Paul is turning his focus to the doctrine of sanctification. And this is the the teaching about how we actually grow spiritually, how we actually become more and more and more like Jesus in our daily lives, how we change. That's what Paul is focusing on uh, beginning in Romans 6. And you see, Paul is going to make it clear to us that the daily experience of every Christ follower is a fight. It's a battle. It's a war against sin. He's going to tell us that we have been set free from sin, but he's going to show us it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen without effort. It doesn't happen by just, you know, letting go and letting God. See, Paul knows what I think all of us know when we get honest with ourselves, that following Jesus Christ, this life is a constant fight. It's a battle. He he knows that we're always struggling because we know what we ought to do. And yet many times we we feel our our body, our, our, our flesh, sinful flesh, pulling us to do other things. And so this is what Paul is going to begin showing us today. 
He's going to confront this challenge that all of us face, which is this struggle. You know, if, if God if God has made me righteous, given me this righteousness in Christ, why do I still struggle so much with saying no to sin? Why does my heart feel so stubborn sometimes? Why am I still so angry? Why do I still battle so much with lust in my life? Why does my mind wander when I pray? Why do I lose focus in worship? And the underlying question to all of that is, how can I really change? I, I think all of us want to change, but we, we find that it's such a struggle. That's what Paul's going to talk about beginning today as we study Romans 6. He, he really is showing us what you might call his theology of how to change. Now, let me just remind you where we ended up last week. In the second half of Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, we saw that Christ, the second Adam, has triumphed over sin and death. What we're going to see today is that Christ's triumph over sin and death has been applied to us through our union with Christ. You see, Jesus has set us free from sin. Justification, this doctrine that Paul's been teaching, means that we are set free from the penalty of sin, which is death. Sanctification, this doctrine he's going to start teaching, means that Jesus has set us free from the power of sin in our lives. I'm going to show you three ways today, uh, three ways that we can begin to live in freedom. And the first one is very simple. We're not going to spend as much time in it, but it's important to kind of get it out there. And it's kind of an application of the first two verses. Here's how I want to phrase it. You can write this down in your message notes. Stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. Now, I alluded to this a moment ago. Paul, he anticipates this question that's based on what he has just said at the end of Romans 5. And he answers that question. Here's how he he does it. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this right here tells us that Paul's doctrine of grace, what he taught about God's grace was so radical that people misunderstood it. It sounded so good, so free that it seemed to some people like it might encourage people actually to sin. Some people said, well, you know, if that's true, Paul, doesn't it make sense that we should just like go on sinning so God's grace can abound even more? You know, so they would would say, well, you know, if you're telling me that that God punishes sin in Jesus and that brings great glory to God because it highlights God's grace. If we sin more, wouldn't that give more glory to God because it gives him more opportunities to display his grace? Doesn't that that make sense? And in verse two, Paul turns around and says, have you lost your mind? Like, are you crazy? He says, we died to sin. So how can we still live in it. Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I've never had anyone actually say something like this to me, although it's true in Christian history. You can find some people who have actually taught this kind of abuse of grace. But here's what I want to point out. I think that all of us have indulged in more subtle abuses of grace. Maybe there's someone here who has thought maybe at some time in your life, you know what, I prayed this prayer, asked Jesus in my heart, I walked the aisle, I got dunked, I, 
I, I, I joined a life group. I did some stuff. But the truth is they've never really made any effort to follow Jesus. They don't read the Bible. They don't pray. They don't serve. They don't do anything. Their life really hasn't changed. They're pretty much the way they were before. But they think they're okay with God because of, you know, grace. Maybe this gets it even closer to home. Maybe there are some of us in this room who have said in our lives at one time or another, well, I know fornication is wrong. I know cheating is wrong. I know lying is wrong. I know raging with anger is wrong. I know adultery is wrong. But you know what? I'm just going to do this thing right now because I can ask for forgiveness later. Here's what I want to ask. And this is uh, not a hand raise right now, okay? You don't need to raise your hand, but has anyone ever faced the temptation, thought to themselves, you know, I really want to do it. I'll just ask God to forgive me after. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about. And here's the thing I really believe. If we're all honest in this room and I was asking for a hand raise, every hand would go up. I think we've all done this. And Paul says, if you want to be free from sin, you need to stop making excuses. He, he might put it this way, you need to not presume on God's grace. That, that's what we're doing when we, we think like this. See, Paul says, thinking that grace gives us excuses to sin just misses how radical our new life in Christ is. He also would say, I think it also may be a sign, if you do it a lot, that you've never truly been converted. We have this new life in Christ, Paul says, and it's a radical new life. Did you notice the phrase he uses? He said, we died to sin. This word died is in the past tense in Greek. Um, That means it's already happened. And you need to notice this is not a command. He's not telling us here to die to sin. He says, you've died. It's already been done. It's a statement of fact. Something has happened. It's done. We are dead to sin. We're dead to that old way of life. And, and this is Paul's central argument here that we will not continue to live in sin because we've died to sin. It's our new reality. He, he's saying the gospel of grace does not empower sin. The gospel of grace executes sin. It puts it to death. So therefore, it just is incomprehensible. It doesn't even make sense to remain in something that you've already died to. Uh, Michael Bird, the Australian scholar that I've referred to a couple of times, has got a great a commentary on Romans. He, he compares this attitude of excuse-making, of rationalizing, to like being at the bottom of the well and someone puts a rope down uh, to you so you can get out of the well and then you say, I don't need the rope. He, he says that grace is designed to get us out of our predicament, not make us comfortable in it. He's telling us what Paul is saying, the truly justified, made righteous person doesn't go on living as if they have not been justified. So let me ask you, if you want to be set free from sin, where are you making excuses in your life that just enable you to stay in that sin? The second thing that we see is really the reason why, underlying why we should stop making excuses. It's the main thing Paul is saying. It's where we're going to spend most of our time. And it's such an important part of the Christian life. Paul says, beginning in in verse 3, that we are to know 
that we are united to Christ. No, you are united to Christ. Now, as I said, Paul in Romans 6 is giving us his theology of how to change. And this word no is key. If you read through these 14 verses, you're going to see it three different times in verse 3 and in verse 6 and in verse 9. Paul is saying there are some realities that we know. We know, and he calls us to live out of the, those realities. And the reality that he's talking about is, is what is known as the doctrine of our union with Christ. If you're taking notes, I'd like to encourage you to write that phrase, union with Christ, down. And here's why. I think this may be the most important doctrine that hardly anyone knows much of anything about. It's such a central doctrine, and yet so many people really don't know what it is. Uh, John Murray is a scholar who wrote a great book um, a, a number of years ago, and he said this, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It underlies every aspect of redemption. In other words, everything good that we experience in Christ comes out of our union with Christ. You say, well, what, what does it mean? Well, let me put it like this real simply. Union with Christ means that you are connected to Jesus in such a vital way that whatever is true of him becomes true of you. Write that down. Think about it. Pray over it. Meditate on it this week. Think about it. And keep it in mind as we're working through these verses. What what is Paul telling us? Well, there are two key things. He's already alluded to one, and he's going to talk more about it. The first one uh, is this. Union with Christ means that we died to sin with Christ. We died to sin with Christ. Go back to the last part of verse 2 and then verse 3 where Paul writes, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, again, Paul is just saying it is unthinkable that a Christ follower would live in sin. And the reason he says that is so beautiful. Don't miss it. He says you don't keep on sinning because that's not who you are anymore. That would be a good place for an amen, just in case you were wondering. That's not who we are anymore. You have a new identity in Christ, Paul says. You see, when when you come to Christ and you receive Christ and he forgives all your sins, he, he comes into your life and he doesn't just forgive all your sins. He sweeps you into this larger story that you are now part of. And the things that are true of Jesus now become true of you. Because you're united with him. You say, well, what does die to sin mean? Well, it means first that we are dead to the penalty of sin. And I think most of us get that. The penalty of sin is death. We're separated from God. We experience physical death. And so die to sin means that's not our, our, our lot anymore. Because Jesus died in our place, when we trust in him, we are justified, declared righteous. And it's not because of anything we've done, but because of what he has done. We're dead to sin's penalty, but we're also dead to sin's power. We're freed from sin's power. We're freed from sin's dominion. Sin no longer reigns, but God's spirit now lives in our hearts and enables us to walk in faithfulness to live lives that, that please God. Maybe you can kind of keep this straight like this. Justification is that we are free from the penalty of sin. That's what Paul's been talking about. Sanctification, what Paul is going to talk about in Romans 6 to 8, is that we are freed from the power of sin. 
And then if we kind of play this all out, Paul is, was also at one point going to tell us that ultimately one day after we die, when we're in eternity there, we will experience glorification, which means, praise God, we will be free from the presence of sin. That's salvation. That's salvation. Salvation is not simply that you trusted in Christ one day. Salvation is that you've been freed from the penalty of sin uh, in, in experiencing a freedom from death, eternal death. Salvation is that you are increasingly in the present, becoming like Christ and experiencing freedom from the power of sin. Then ultimately, one day, we become like Jesus and we are freed from the presence of sin. This is what being one with Christ, being in Christ, union with Christ means. And Paul does something pretty interesting. It kind of would surprise a lot of us. He, he, he uses baptism to illustrate this. Notice he says in verse 3, all of us. He says all of us know this because he assumes that all of us are baptized. By the way, kind of a side note, the New Testament has no category for an unbaptized Christian. If you are someone who, who would say, yes, I've trusted in Christ. I've asked him to forgive my sins. I've asked him to come into my life. And yet at the same time, you have chosen over a period of time not to be baptized. Paul would be very confused. Paul would not understand why. None of the New Testament writers would, would have a category for someone who says they know Jesus, but then they choose not to follow the very first command that Jesus gives to all his followers. So baptism is supposed to be this universal experience of people who follow Jesus. And here's why. Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. See, we are, if you think about it, this in terms of baptism, when we are made one with Christ, brought into union with Christ, united with Christ, we are immersed into Jesus, his death, his burial and his resurrection. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ spiritually. That's what Paul teaches in another place. He says that's reality. And then baptism is the way we proclaim that spiritual reality in a public and physical way. We're baptized in water. If you've read this chapter, maybe you've noticed how often baptism is associated with death. You just go and look at the verses and see how many times Paul talks about death in this passage. And here's the reason. When we are baptized, we proclaim that God has the right to judge us for our sins. Our sins are worthy of death. And we proclaim in our baptism that when we are found in Christ, Jesus took that penalty that we deserved. And he died and he was buried in the ground. And that's why Jesus, do you remember this? When he's headed to the cross and he's talking about his cross, he talks about it as a baptism that he's going to undergo. And he, he says that he's anxious until he experiences that baptism of death. And this is part of why we believe that baptism happens truly when you go under the water. And, and that's why we immerse people in the water, not just because the Greek word actually means that, but because that is actually what it's depicting. When you're baptized, it's depicting your union with Christ. So what are we saying? Well, we are saying that we have been drowned with Christ. Christ, we have been put to death 
with Christ. The wrath of God has overtaken us and we have gone into a watery grave as one dead, completely cut off from air, buried, and then we are miraculously raised to a new life on the other side. That's what baptism is showing every time. I think sometimes we treat it so casually. We, we, we think people are just getting dunked. And yet what's happening in reality is that they are demonstrating in a physical, tangible way that we can all see what spiritually has taken place every time a sinner comes and trusts in Jesus Christ and is made righteous in Jesus Christ and is given life in Jesus Christ. That's what baptism depicts. We are made one in Christ. And you see, we immerse people because we think that such a radical break from our old life uh, demands something that's such a a bold and public declaration. What has actually happened in our unification with Christ? One commentator says it like this, Christ's death for sin becomes our death to sin. So we are united with Christ. We have died to sin. Do you think of your life like that? Does that thought ever cross your mind? I know Jesus. That means I'm dead to sin. When you really get that in your heart, it changes you. It changes you because it's united to the next thing that Paul says, which is that we share in Christ's resurrection life. So we don't just die, we get new life. Verses 4 and 5 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, the purpose of us dying to sin was that we would live new lives. We would live resurrected lives spiritually. Paul says, the glory of the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And just like God raised Jesus from the dead, he has raised us from the dead. We live resurrected lives. And when you put that together, you have to see, that's why it's so absurd to think that we who have died to sin are going to still live in sin. It doesn't make any sense. It's utterly incomprehensible. How, Paul would say, can we do that? Some years ago, uh, the Cuban dictator Castro sent a man named Salvador to Miami to to be like a spy, a mole, who would get in and and, and get some military secrets. And as as Salvador was kind of embedding himself there in Miami with Cuban nationalists, his, his mind actually changed. And he ended up renouncing his loyalties to Castro. He turned himself in to the United States government. They granted him asylum. He was given a new identity, but there was a problem. And the problem was Castro's government was still going to be hunting him down. And so their solution was this. They faked his assassination. They built this whole story up. They put it in the newspapers. Everyone thought Salvador was dead. See, not only did he have this new identity, his old self had died. See, here's the truth for Salvador. Think about it like this. There was no way ever that he could ever go back to Cuba. See, that's what Paul is saying here. 
there's no way ever that you can truly go back and keep on sinning because that part of you died. That's your old self. You're a new person. You have a new resurrected life. And we all say amen, right? But here's the problem. Are you thinking about it right now? You say, yeah, I get it. I believe this. I know it's true. But why do I keep struggling with sin? Why do I keep struggling with sin? Now, I need you to know, Paul is going to keep talking about this more and more as we continue through Romans 6 through 8. And that means we don't have to try to answer all the questions today. But this highlights for us at the very front of all this why we must fight sin. We have truly died to sin. We have truly been raised to life in Christ. But that does not mean we don't sin anymore. That does not mean we're no longer tempted. That does not mean we live perfect lives. See, we live still in a broken and fallen world. We're not home yet. Maybe you can understand it if you think about it like this. This comes from a book that Jerry Bridges wrote a few years ago called The Disciplines of Grace. He said, sin is like a defeated army in a civil war that instead of surrendering and laying down its arms simply fades into the countryside from which it continues to wage a guerrilla war of harassment and sabotage against the government forces. Sin as a reigning power is defeated in the life of a believer, but it will never surrender. It will continue to harass us and seek to sabotage our, sabotage our Christian lives as long as we live. See, we, we will continue to struggle and sometimes we will fail. But here's some good news. And maybe you need to cling on to this today. Even when we're struggling with sin, it's not who we are. It's not who we are. It is not what is most true about you. If you are in Christ, united with Christ, what is most true about you is that you have died to sin and you are now alive forever with this resurrected life that God has given you. I think one of the most powerful ways that that we can learn to uh, incorporate this reality into our lives as we meditate on our lives and pray over our lives is to begin to confess and begin to speak this truth maybe every day. That's not who I am anymore. When you confess sin and receive forgiveness, say, that's not who I am anymore. I saw this tweet one time that said, Christ, not failure, is our history. And that is so true. And maybe you need to hear this today. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you have failed. Maybe you're saying, but I did those things. Paul is saying, no, you didn't. You didn't. That's not who you are anymore. Paul is saying the person who did those things has died. He goes on to kind of flesh this out in verses 6 and 7. He says here, our old selves were crucified with Christ. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And he's just building on what he's already been saying. He says the result of our death to sin and our resurrection to uh, spiritual life means we are freed from slavery to sin. And, And he just talks about this old self. 
a lot of controversy, a lot of different opinions about precisely what this means. For today, let me just sum it up like this. It means everything you were before you became a Christ follower. And Paul says that old self was dominated by sin, but that old self has been put to death on the cross. Paul uses this phrase, body of sin. Again, a lot of discussion about what this means. But I think he's basically saying uh, that the body is the vehicle through which we express our sin, that, that sin comes out of your bodies. Maybe you think about it like this. You've never sinned apart from your body, right? You just can't do that apart from your body. So sin is being personified here as a, a person that can actually be executed, put to death. And Paul is calling us to look back like what we studied last week and, and remember that that old self in Adam was enslaved to sin. But he says that person has been put to death and that means we are now free. We have freedom to choose the things of the Lord. In the past, we didn't. You, can you think back in your life before you came to Christ and it was like when temptations came, you didn't have a choice. You just had to do those things, but now you don't have to. And we're going to see in just a couple of minutes of the verses that are ahead, verses 11 to 14, that Paul expects us to war with sin. It's a battle. It's a fight. It's a war. And that war is going to go on until we are in heaven for eternity with the Lord until we are glorified because we have in us this thing called indwelling sin. Our, we're not perfect now, but we are free. We are not under sin's domination. We are free now to choose not to sin. And that's different than it was before. In the past, you were enslaved to sin. Now you are free not to sin. Now that is the normal pattern of the Christian life, growth and sanctification, that we are choosing to be who we are more and more, more and more, the longer we follow Christ. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about, but what Paul in part is telling us here is that God's verdict of justification over us begins actually to create the very thing that it declares. That means that justification True justification always leads to sanctification because grace is transformative. It's sort of like what happens every time I officiate at a wedding ceremony. At the end of the ceremony, I get to speak those happy words. I now pronounce you husband and wife. And those words speak into reality something that is now true. And that is true of us spiritually as well. Now, I want to just say, I know this may be very difficult to hear for some of us. Maybe right now, maybe right now in your life, you're experiencing just being in the grip of sin. And I want you to hear if that's where you are right now. And maybe last night, you think about last night or you think about last week and you feel very ashamed and you're full of regret. But today you need to hear there is freedom for you in Christ. And you can come back to him and you can receive that forgiveness and you can receive that freedom. And maybe, maybe if you're struggling with sin, maybe what you most need to hear is this reality. I know it's true all around you in this room are people who one day were struggling just like you. But if you ask them, they would tell you that God has given them freedom and victory as they have trusted in him. And maybe they would tell you it takes a long time 
but they have learned that sin's power is broken and they are now free. And so they are living into the reality of who they truly are. If that's where you are, maybe what you need to hear is one day, praise God, one day those of us in Christ will never sin again. One day we will not only be free from sin's power, but we will be free from sin's presence. That's what Paul really is ultimately talking about in verses 8 through 10. He says we have a new future in Christ. He writes, now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He's just reminding us, and we're going to talk about this more, but we have a new future both now and in the age to come in this death to sin. And and that freedom we have means we can live in confidence in this life. You are not under sin's reign. You are not under sin's dominance because you are one with Christ. One with Christ. I, I like what I heard someone say this last week. The cross was sin's final move. The resurrection was God's checkmate. The game is over. Jesus has accomplished this once and for all. You have in Christ, in your union with him, everything that is necessary for you to be free from sin's power, everything for today and tomorrow for your future out into eternity that's already all been accomplished on the cross. And so therefore you can live no matter your struggles with certainty and in confidence because God is setting you free. Your future is safe because it doesn't depend on you. It depends ultimately on the work of your father and on the work of your brother, Jesus. We are one with him. A long time ago, a Reader's Digest told this true story and I've kind of been mindful that since I started out this message the way I should, I should affirm with you when I'm telling a true story. This is a true story. One day, the story goes, a father took his two elementary school aged kids for a ride in a pontoon boat on the river. And they were traveling down the the river when suddenly the, the, the motor stopped and the father turned around. And in horror, he saw this familiar red sweater tangled up in the propeller right as his son yelled out, Sherry fell in. And in horror, he saw as he looked, his, his daughter was tangled up in the propeller of the boat and she was submerged just beneath the surface of the water, looking up straight into his eyes, holding her breath. He jumped into the water and he tried to pull the motor up, but it was too heavy. It wouldn't budge and time was running out. Desperately, the father would fill his own lungs with air and then go below the surface and blow air into his daughter's lungs. He did that three times when he finally got his son to hand him a knife and he quickly cut that sweater from the propeller and he lifted his daughter into the boat. Although she had survived, she had deep cuts, bad bruises, needed a medical attention, and they, they rushed her to the hospital. When the crisis was over, the doctors and the nurses asked this little girl, how come you didn't panic? And she said, well, we've grown up on the river, and my dad always taught me if you panic, you die. Besides, 
I knew my daddy would come and rescue me. I knew. See, when you struggle with sin, you need to remember that's not who I am anymore. I am in Christ. I am one with him. My union with Christ means that what is true of him is true of me. No, you are united with Christ. Third thing, Paul says, now just live this out. Live out of your identity in Christ. In light of who we are in Christ, Paul is now telling us what to do. This begins in verse 11. He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you're doing memory verses, this is our first memory verse from chapter 6, if you want to start working on it. But what happens right here is Paul shifts from who we are, these indicative truths, these realities about us to what we must do. He gives commands. He gives imperatives based on who we are in Christ. And he says, first of all, you have to consider yourself dead to sin. I've already told you you are, but now you have to consider it. Tom Schreiner in his commentary on Romans says, this is very interesting here. This is the very first command we find in the book of Romans. It hasn't been one command all the way up to this point. And so that means the first thing that Paul explicitly tells the Roman believers to do is to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God. He he says, you have left that old person behind. And, And what this is telling us here is something very important. Sanctification always requires our active involvement. This word consider is a present imperative. You've probably heard a pastor say before that the present tense means this is something we are to continually do. The continual action every day in our lives is we are considering ourselves dead to sin. This is a key step toward freedom. Daily remind yourself that these things are actually true. And this is not magic, hocus pocus. This is not mind over matter. This is actually putting these truths into our lives, working them out in our lives by reflecting on who we actually are. We're appropriating these truths into our lives. It is a struggle. I've been saying this time and time again. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor um, in England, I mentioned him to you at the beginning of this series. He's one of those guys that uh, preached through Romans and like it took him a hundred years to get through. And I told you we weren't going to do that. Uh, He's actually got an entire book about this thick on Romans six. We're not going to do that. We're not going to take that long, but he says something really good. He he makes uh, an illustration to picture this. And he looks across the Atlantic ocean to our country and thinks about our history here. And he says this, imagine a country in which one group of people has been enslaving and oppressing another group of people for centuries. Whenever a member of the enslaved group meets a member of the oppressing group, the oppressor could order them to do anything. And if they didn't obey, they could be beaten or killed because the oppressor had the right and the power. But then a good king comes into power and he decrees emancipation for all the slaves. He sets up his soldiers and police in every town. He puts judges in place. These enslaved people are now free. But Lloyd-Jones asks this question, is that all it takes? Because 
The reality is, with that history, whenever a member of the enslaved group, having been enslaved all of their lives, met a member of the oppressing group, they would still experience fear. They might still follow orders. Truth is, the oppressor does not have that power anymore. And if the formerly enslaved person resisted, they would have succeeded. But over and over, formerly enslaved people continue to act like slaves because although their status had changed, the reality had changed, they weren't living in that reality. That's a picture of you and me spiritually. We must live out our identity in Christ. And we do that, Paul says, by considering ourselves again and again and again to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Second command, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul is simply saying here, as we consider ourselves dead to sin, we refuse to let sin reign in our lives. We just make a choice. No, I'm not going to let sin, which I'm dead to, reign in my life anymore. I'm not going to do it. The Puritan uh, John Owen has a great quote that I think it would be good for many of us to be reminded of. And here he says, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. I think another way to think of that is that we need to wake up every day remembering that we're at war. We're in a spiritual battle. Satan is trying to destroy us and he doesn't have the power to do so unless we allow him. We do not have to submit to what he puts before us. In verse 13, Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He's simply reminding us what I said earlier, whenever we sin, our body's involved. So we don't offer our body parts, our hands, our feet, our mouths. We don't offer those as weapons for the enemy to use. Instead, we offer those things as weapons to God. Again, we're at war. This is military language. Uh, Paul, in another place, he says this in Colossians, also in Ephesians, he talks about uh, this process like when we change clothes. We put some clothes off and we put new clothes on. I was thinking about it. Maybe yesterday you did chores around the house. Maybe you worked in the yard. I doubt that anybody here got up this morning and said, you know what I'm going to wear to church? I'm going to wear what I wore to mow the lawn yesterday, right? You don't do that. Because those clothes are dirty. Those clothes don't smell so good. No one will want to sit next to you. You wear new clothes, clean clothes. That's what Paul says we are doing. We take those things out of our lives and we replace those things with something better. We kill the sin in our lives. And we replace those things with the things that Jesus gives us. Final verse, and I'll close with this. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, Paul has been giving us commands, but this verse is not a command. It's a promise. Sin will not triumph in your life. Do you want to say amen? 
Grace does not encourage sin. Grace annihilates sin. Grace changes us. And so we must live in that reality. We have been set free from sin. That's reality. We have, uh, we have died to sin, and so we are no longer under its dominion because we are united with Christ. We have been raised to walk in new life. Our old selves have been crucified. We have a new future. All those things are true. All those things are reality. So live out of that reality. This is who you are in Christ. This is reality. Live in it. I want to close by giving you three truths. And these truths are going to be given to you as examples of the kind of things that you can build in your life to pray as each day you fight this battle against sin and you see God increasingly bring victory into your life. Here they are on the screen. Uh, The first one is, I am bought with Christ's blood. You should remind yourself every day that Jesus died to save you. Second, I have been delivered from slavery to sin. You should remind yourself every day, sin has no dominion over you. And then third, I was saved by Christ so that I would not sin. To put you into a different place. You are one with Christ. You've been united to Christ. This is who you are. You're not that old person anymore, Southwinds. You're a new person now. So live in the reality of that new identity. Now, before we pray, I want to tell you, I have been so conscious looking at this of how many things I haven't been able to say. There's so much more in this passage. And so we're about to take a break for a few weeks on Romans. In fact, next Sunday, invite you back. I know it's the July 4th weekend, but if you love Jesus, you'll be here. Um, <laughs> And uh, we're going to have a new series starting. I'm going to start a new series uh, called Parables. It's going to be looking at some of the parables of Jesus. That's what we're going to be doing for six weeks. But then when we come back in August um, and we look at Romans again, we're going to come back to this again and dig deeper into it. So I hope between now and then you will be taking the things we've learned today, praying over them, meditating on them, putting them into practice living out the freedom that we have in Christ. You have been set free from sin. Live in that reality. It's who you are. You're not that old person anymore. Amen? Let's bow for prayer. Father God, thank you uh, that we have this precious promise that you have set us free from sin, that in our struggles with sin, Lord, we can live knowing We don't have to live under sin's domination. Sin does not reign over us anymore. You have set us free from sin. We have died to sin and you've raised us to new life. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would comfort us. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, to see faulty ways of thinking and help us to think according to your truth. We love you. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the victory that you give us in him. We pray all of these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, and all God's people said.